Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Lalita, Lalita in the studio today. Um, before we begin the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR is being broadcast to you, and this program is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation, and that, you know, it always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. And the program is um, streaming online, of course, and you can listen to podcasts of the program within a couple of days after it goes to air if you miss any of the interviews. Yeah. So um, this um, this morning we have a pretty packed program um, for listeners. Um, we are, um, after... T- 14 minutes, we'll be playing a pre-recorded interview with Dick Nichols on the whole situation in Catalonia. Um, I think that's what we've been kind of doing for the past two to three weeks, but um, there's things are really moving fast yeah, there. And, so you know, much happening. There's just so much happening that I think, you know, quite important that we cover it. Um, and then we'll have a number of um, interviews related to unions. So Jed Carney is go to call into the studio um, to talk about this case around penalty rates. And then we have an interview with uh, NTU Victoria University branch president um, to talk about the kind of recent sackings um, that happened at Victoria University, um, which is clearly a con- um, conceded kind of attack on the trade union. Okay, latest news. There's something about the health stuff. On religion, I, f- I, f- I fail to get the details of it. The government is making adjustments to the um, health insurance mm-hmm. and the, the Medicare provision of certain services, which means the um, yeah, it, it's focused on young people mm. and uh, it's how you can um, supposedly motivate, and I read that as a con, um, young people to take health insurance. In other words, there's a huge shift going on from provision of um, health services based on Medicare to privatization of health, a continuing saga. And this is going to continue as long as the current neoliberal um, policies are in place, regardless of which a political party um, comes into power. And it's just appalling the way the shift is going on. Uh, from public to private. So we'll get more details once that bit unravels. But we have, um, what the other news is you want to talk about in um, relation to? Um, the unions or the um, equal um, 
was the marriage equality campaign that seems to have gone by the wayside. Yeah, yeah I think I think the campaign is kind of at this point where we've kind of reached a peak moment, um, especially in terms of the rallies and the mass demonstrations. Um, there is going to be um, one final kind of rally before the survey results are announced on November the. 22nd, oh no, not remember, no, October yeah. the 22nd, yeah. um, which is going to be known as the Yes Fest um, at 1pm at the State Library. Okay. Um, but the kind of, I think the latest data kind of shows that at least kind of 60% of people have already sent their voting forms in. 60. Um, of the people who are enrolled and um, overwhelmingly the majority of those people who are sending in their ballot forms already are voting yes. Um, I guess might be just worth mentioning it for a few minutes because this has kind of been dominating the headlines um, is this whole, all the kind of sexual assault kind of allegations, which are all true, um, towards um, this film producer called Harvey Weinstein. That's and you right. po- and probably Any of all the listeners have probably undoubtedly have watched a film <laughs> um, produced by Weinstein because it's a pretty major pro- film He's producer. a major producer, yeah. Um, and so, and but I guess... The more interesting kind of implication for it, you mean, we all know that Hollywood is, you know, kind of this kind of cesspool of like, you know, that normalizes, you know, abuse of power, etc. But I guess what has come out of this is and the number of Hollywood female actresses who are speaking out about this. And of course, we're getting um, actors like Ben Affleck are getting called out for their hypocrisy because, you know, it was, it's kind of poetic. Basically, after these Harvey Weinstein uh, allegations occurred, Ben Affleck made, you know, a relatively kind of strong statement condemning Harvey, you know, which is good, apart from the fact that Ben Affleck has a history of groping women. And so he was immediately caught out for that and, you know, revealed to kind of like the hypocritical kind of sexist misogynist that he is. Men in power are dangerous in all, all ways, in many ways, you know, than people like to imagine. Mm. And, and that... Um, trap that women walk into when you, you have to work with or under a, a, a powerful man. Mm. Um, the fear, the loathing, uh, you know, it, people say, oh, well, why didn't you come out and report straight away? This is a question I simply detest. Everybody says, oh, well, if you're beaten up, why didn't you leave? Mm. If you're being abused, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you say something mm. about it? They don't understand the inner workings of the insulation of fear in women about complaining mm. and the repercussions of complaining and the stress women go through um, when they complain. It's horrible. I know women you know, in my profession where um, some of my clients have stayed with an abusive partner for like 10 years or 20 years and they're so relieved when the person dies. And it's sad to say this, but that's what happens because they don't have the confidence um, to to open up and um, admit there's violence in the family and, and mm. the old thing about, you know, shame that you're living with a person who's abusive and economic circumstances. A lot of women have that problem as as we know that, you know, a large perc- percentage of homeless women today are the older women mm. that tells you the financial difficulties women have um, in, in making a living out there. And how do you leave a guy, especially when you've got kids and there's so little support mm. for families. So mm. there's so many issues mm. um, involved in come out and coming out and saying, yes, um, this guy's abuser. Yeah. You know? yeah. in, a, in a kind of um, in fa- 
fascinating story of kind of male privilege in relation to Harvey Weinstein is um, one of these things reported that apparently um, he doesn't actually have a problem with misogyny. Um, He actually apparently has a sex addiction and that's what led him to do all these horrible acts towards women, you know, which is just, you know, telling he doesn't actually, I I would argue, no, he doesn't have a sex addiction. He just has a, uh, he's just a misogynist who has a problem with misogyny. When all else fails, put it in a medical category. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, to moving on, um, I'm going to move on to a case. Um, This is just the latest article from Green Left Weekly, um, but it's kind of like um, advising kind of listeners um, that, don't buy streets ice cream um, right now because. Oh yeah. Um, and this is um, workers at the um, at the streets ice cream factory in Minto are planning a boycott of streets products, including the iconic paddle pop. Um, if Unilever continues its efforts into the Fair Work Commission to end their enterprise bargaining grant, um, this boycott would obviously be quite similar to the Carlton United Breweries um, and the Australian. Manufacturers Working Union, as it's written here in Green Left Weekly, um, which represents the 145 street workers, said they are worried about the threat of a significant pay cut and reduced conditions if they um, were to be forced back onto the ward. Um, Referring to the CUB dispute, AMW Secretary Steve Murphy said, it's pretty hard to not drink the beer you love. It's a whole lot easier to change the brand of ice cream you eat. The effect on of the boycott on Unilever is going to be significant. Um, negotiations over a new agreement broke down after 50 months after the workers overwhelmingly rejected the pay company's offer. Um, but then the company Unilever then refused to participate in further talks. Um, and so kind of what's happening next here is... Um, the AWU, AMW are trying to get their workers involved and the workers involved to basically get their members to text them how a pay cut would affect them um, and then kind of, you know, use their, their kind of anecdotes as part of the campaign. Um, and, of course, the union is now asking supporters to email Unilever to urge them to negotiate a fair deal and um, a pro forma interview email is available on the AMW's website. So basically what's kind of the summary of that is... Uh, the Unilever, uh, which is, I think, the company that owns streets ice cream, um, basically is, you know, screwing over workers with a, sh- a very terrible enterprise bargaining agreement. Um, the workers are trying to negotiate for a better deal mm. and the company is not letting them, you know, le- not even letting those negotiations take place. So um, the A workers are advising, you know, a boycott of, you know, the streets ice cream and that they get and that we, you know, put some significant pressure on them through, you know, sending out emails. There's a lot of this this, this sort of um, EBA negotiation uh, manipulating, manipulating happening out there since the CUB. The SO workers down um, in, in the uh, Gippsland area having a similar problem and the streets ice cream is um, sacking workers and want to re-employ them at 46% less wages. Mm. That's the, the fundamental part of the whole thing and this is, this is an ongoing issue. Uh, and talking about unions, the nurses are on strike, and these are 800 aged nurse care nurses from um, 26 uh, Victoria Bupa nursing homes. 
and they are still negotiating and ANF, ANMF is negotiating with Bupa and has been for some time now but there is I think they're heading for a some industrial action soon and the good news is uh, cone lift workers um, have won a 16% pay rise they're lift workers yeah so it's a bit more crucial I guess in some ways uh, voted except in principle and much more much improved company offer uh, the breakthrough came off the ETU and, and the AMW members took five four-day five, four um, and one six-day stoppages at separate times um, over six weeks. So they will soon receive a 5% wage rise. So that's a bit of a victory for some unionists. Yeah. But um, um, we're get, we we'll heading pipe. to the first um, interview that I did with um, Dick last, last yeah. night. Actually. So I just want to just talk about, just so I can probably spend the next two minutes talking about a quick news story. Um, it's based... Um, basically, just because I wrote an article about it yesterday um, that will be in the next week's Green Left Weekly. But um, over the weekend, um, Daniel Andrews announced, um, the government announced an, uh, a series of kind of sweeping reforms um, that increase rights, focus on increasing rights for tenants. Um, and that includes basically the right for tenants to have pets. Landlords uh, have less power to be able to refuse tenants to have pets. Um in most circumstances, hopefully. We don't know how it will play out in practice. Um, uh, at the uh, end to sort of, you know, um, basically landlords can now only offer 12-month leases instead of six. Um, and then all sorts of change. You can all kind of read it on Daniel Andrews' kind of Facebook page on the kind of changes. These are all going to be introduced into legislation next year. Um, although one of the things I kind of wrote uh, about these changes of you know, they're kind of like basic things of increased attendance, right? They're all like positive things, but they ultimately don't really fix a broken <laughs> housing market because there's nothing right. in here that will actually address the the increased price of rent to begin with. It's um, all tinkering, tinkering around the edges, you know. Mm. You you don't even look at – I think there, there have been some discussion about the conditions of uh, properties that are being um, mm. rented out. They're some of the appalling condition, mm. and it's it goes to the heart of um, privatization because the private owners can rent out a shack basically and I think that not not long ago there was a house that was put up for sale and had been yeah. rented by people didn't have a kitchen or bathroom mm. how do you rent out a house like that most significant point actually um, is despite these reforms you know clearly not radically overhauling you know the whole housing market is um, these small reforms have actually got a, a good amount of opposition from the Real Estate Institute of, of Victoria um, and they're making this kind of false claim that oh yes you know this is just too much, uh, you know, you can't, like, it's going to be bad for tenants because it's going to lead to an increase in market rent. So basically going on to this fear so campaign. So if you have a, a pet, your rent goes up. What are the I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder how these real estate agents would react if, if the Daniel Andrews government was actually a real radical government and actually, <laughs> you know, did things like, you know, put, like, restrictions on capital tax gangs and, and then turn a lot of prop, private no, housing into public know, housing. It's like... It's yeah. It's just telling even a small bit of reform. They're feeling very comfortable because they're in an environment that is very supportive of private um, mm. enterprise. That, yeah. that's all it is, and they're doing whatever they can. The smallest amount of change, they kick up a big stink. Yeah. All right. So I'll just play a quick announcement, and we'll go on to the first interview by Dick. Mm. 
For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wilderness Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter. This time we'll pass away. This world might not be here to stay. Welcome back to 3CI, Dick, and we have some exciting things happening in Catalonia. And thank you for making the time to talk to 3CR. Now, let's maybe start My from... My pleasure, Ali. Thank you. I should wait, shouldn't I? <laughs> now, mm. on Tuesday, the um, Prime Minister of Catalonia, Puigdemont, made a declaration of independence, but reserved it for enabling talks. So, what what is going on? <clears throat> yes, well, well they, they had to make the decision and, and under the legislation that had been adopted in the Catalan Parliament uh, covering the referendum and covering a transition to an independent Catalonia if there was a yes vote, a successful yes vote, um, they had to make a decision that they were declaring independence and everybody expected them to declare independence. As soon as that happened, um, the pressures and the blackmail, economic blackmail on the government became extraordinarily strong. Um, I mean, all the main, just to give you an idea, all the main Catalan big companies have shifted their headquarters out of Catalonia. Mm. And the banks with, started with rolling With there. the exception of one, <clears throat> led by the two big banks here. And this was orchestrated from Madrid because economically in the short run, it means nothing. All it means is that the orders are being coming from an office somewhere else, but the mm. economic activity in the short run isn't affected. But it's meant to create the... Um, it's meant to create the feeling that, oh, no, economic crisis, mm. uh, we better stop investment. Uh, people, you know, so it's, it's meant to affect uh, business confidence and hence confidence of consumers and, and you know, frighten everybody, put the frighteners on everyone and had some success so far, but not as much success as maybe they would have wanted. But the other pressure came from uh, the European Union, which, and in the end, the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, said, uh, gave us, made a personal appeal, personal appeal on television, of course, uh, asking <laughs> Puigdemont not to, not to declare independence. So <clears throat> this also caused a lot of nervousness inside the more conservative ranks of the independence movement, which is the part of the independence movement that's most connected to, to business. You know? But on the other hand, you've got the mass movement, which everybody's, you beauty, we're going to have independence. Everybody's mm. revved up. So in the end, what he did, which I think was the only thing he could do, and I that's think right. was an intelligent thing to do, that's just my opinion, um, was that they said, well, we're going to declare independence. It's there. It's declared. Um, but we're suspending it mm. so that uh, we can have talks can go ahead. And the suspension, uh, and we're asking the Spanish government to stop behaving like a bunch of thugs. They didn't put it like that, but that's of what's course. been going on. <laughs> um, and to sit down at the table with us and negotiate. So that's what that's what the that explains the form of that uh, the form of the declaration. So it's 
the Declaration of Independence, but it actually throws the ball back on the, uh, you know, throws puts the ball back in the court of of the uh, Spanish government, and it also puts pressure on I think other. Uh, countries in Europe, but also the European Commission, to show that they're not just talking nonsense when they say, oh, we want negotiations, there should be dialogue, we can't have Spain breaking up. Okay, you say that, what are you going to do, what are you prepared to do about it? And it also gives time for building solidarity and support in other countries in Europe, which is very important. Um, the Spanish government has got to feel that there's a political price for going ahead with what they want to do, which is the suspension of the regional government, the Catalan regional government. Um, and was, there's a political price to pay, not just here, which there'll be a huge political price to pay here, of course, but also in other countries in Europe. So that's why it took that form. Mm. The interesting thing is, um, as you point out, uh, Big Business was delighted. The Spanish Confederation of Business Organizations applauded the ultimatum to the Catalan government sent by Rajoy. Return to the Constitution. Um, and they were considering fully applying Article 115 of the Spanish Constitution. Well, they put, they've said, unless we get a clear statement that you're not, not declaring independence, we will apply it. So, so you've got five days to capitulate. That's what that's saying. But now he has declared uh, independence, but has reserved it, so to speak. That leaves the whole thing nowhere, really, does it? But basically what it is, I, I would expect that this will be moved to showdown, that the Catalan government can't withdraw this. Um, <clears throat> they all say, no, we, we've, we've declared independence, but we, we want to have negotiations. The Rajoy government will say, well, that's not good enough, so we're going to apply uh, 155. But then they have a big problem, which is that um, uh, their block is their block of pro unionist forces runs from people who are fascists, outright Francoists and fascists, who would send the army in tomorrow if they could, uh, through to people who just hope that the pressure will lead for lead these, the Catalan government to take a step backwards and then they're promising all sorts of things like a, a constitutional commission and a, dis, a remodelling of the Spanish, reforming of the Spanish constitution within a year. And this is the line of the um, Socialist Workers' Party, the Social Democratic Socialist Workers' Party here, the PSOE, the main, the main opposition. Uh, and so they're using the crisis to try and get their agenda for a remodelling of the Spanish state along federal lines, but with no right to self-determination, hmm. uh, introduced. And so that's what, what you've got, what was agreed last night in Parliament here, was a, it was a pact. There's a pact between the main parties of the Constitution and the maiden parties of the post-Franco transition, which is the PP and the PSOE. Uh, the PP is the stick and the PSOE is a little bit of carrot. Carrot, and, yes. And they've got their stick-carrot combination working. And what they hope is that that will scare enough people inside the nationalist movement here who will look, it's, you know, either we take this or we're over the abyss, uh, abyss and there's the European unions saying calling for negotiations well you know that's that's what the design that's what it's designed to do it's designed to crack uh, the already flimsy courage of some people in the uh, in the nationalist movement on the right wing of it uh, and in that way 
force Puigdemont to to back off. I find it very hard. Just as just a personal comment, I find it very hard to imagine that he will. Um, that uh, and I mean certainly the movement, the whole nationalist movement, Catalan nationalist movement, is absolutely. You know, they were very disappointed. Yes, I saw that. Uh, some, they some were dis- pictures, a lot of disappointment. Yeah. Not mm. from the most, maybe we could say, put it this way, not from the people who are most acute about what's going on, but just the raw emotion of the people who've come down, they've fought for, you know, all this time, and then at the last minute the whole thing gets suspended. That caused a lot of uh, disappointment. The CUP, which is the Left Nationalist People's Unity List, have said, well, you know, we'll wear this for very upset. We'll wear this for a month. You've got a month and then in a month we'll decide whether we're going to be supporting the government or not because this government survives on the support of the, uh, of the CUP hmm. uh, because if they, if they pull the plug, then there's new elections here. Um, so that's, a, that's an important pressure. Um, so the combination of the CUP threatening that plus the movements both the uh, african uh, sorry, african what am i saying <laughs> the catalan national assembly and the um, omnium cultural which is the language and uh, cultural association they've said well deadline you've got a month hmm. so, so so people are wearing it yeah. and there's still you know people trust Puigdemont because he's got enormous political uh, credibility hmm. but it's not infinite you know, mm. so but the strategy every- he's employed is really interesting and clever because he's going to wait and more and more prove the Spanish government is is the one that's belligerent and refuse to respect even even the right to secede, which is um, you know documented in the UN. You know, surely um, that must bring disrepute to Rajoy if if he's already not um, disrespected. <coughs> Yeah, that's right, Lali. Well, so what they, they have to do and what they're doing is exposing the authoritarian nature of the Spanish state, which mm. is you know, supposed to be another modern European democracy. Uh, and it's not. It's qualitatively different. You know, Spanish conservatism, you know, you've got British conservatism, the Tory party, you know, and there are, of course, in the, there's always authoritarian, really right-wing authoritarian Elements in in all right wing in all uh, conservative parties. Yes, but, we know in you know, Australia. When Cameron, we do. when Cameron saw that the Scottish National Party got forty four percent of the vote on a pro independence pr- platform, he just said, "Oh well, we have to have this. There has to be a referendum." Hmm. The same thing with differences uh, in in Quebec. Hmm. That is to say, there's conservatives who accept some. Uh, you know, have have basic democratic principles. That is, you know, majority rights. And, uh, but also they, Cameron saw the, and, the and political... This is not the case here. No, This but... is not, not the case here. Um, the, con, uh, the conservatives who support the Spanish... People who support Spanish unity in the sort of upper reaches of the popular party, mm-hmm. the People's Party, and who support the, the right to decide don't exist. Mm. Just They just don't exist. These voices don't exist. So it's either you... It's like tribal... You know, yeah. you either support our gang Very or you rigid. support those bastards in Catalonia. Yeah. But Rajoy is just so rigid. He's like a brick wall. Because if Rajoy wasn't there, if Rajoy woke up one morning and said, 
I've rethought this. We should offer the Catalans a, a, a negotiated referendum. Then Rajoy would disappear. That bad. And Rajoy would be replaced in five minutes. Mm. You know, because Rajoy is Rajoy in inverted commas represents a social attitude, and most of all, he represents the the Spanish establishment. Right. Uh, and the economic. You know, it's no it's no wonder as you. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the uh, Confederation of Spanish Business Organ, Spanish Confederation of Business Organizations came out immediately, yep. five minutes after this had been announced, uh, you know, the application of 155. Well, five minutes later, they came out congratulating them. So the big business, big Spanish business, the Spanish, uh, you know, the church, the Catholic church, the all the elites, that passed over from Francoism, the judicial system, etc., etc., etc. This is the cluster hmm. of interest, and then you have in a lot of a lot of the population, you still have this sort of blind uh, Spanish patriotism, which hmm. come which goes back to Francoism. You know, it's the attitude is well, the slogan was Spain, single, united, and free. That is to say. Spanish um, unity is an absolute. Yes. Unity of the Spanish state is an absolute. It takes precedence over democratic principles, takes precedence over everything. Um, and, you know, I can, you can give all sorts of anecdotal evidence about this, but mm. I, have a, I have a friend who comes from the most Spanish centralist, most PP part of Spain. And, uh, you know, he describes what it's like going back to the village and having the old argument because he lives in Catalonia, you know, but he, he, having the arguments time and again. It's very interesting, though, that this block, this Spanish centralist block, is starting to come apart. And a, a sign of that was the vote for Podemos in the, in the last general election here, hmm. where even in areas that are very, you know, where Spanish patriotism is very strong, they still got 15% uh, of the vote. Yeah. Uh, which was unheard of compared to even 10 years ago. Hmm. So, well, talking about Podemos... No, I just wanted to say that because Rajoy, rep, Rajoy is a... A representative. He's yeah. not a completely free agent. In yeah, fact, yeah, he's yeah. far from being a free agent in all of this. Mm. And he's got massive pressures on him. He's got the pressures of his far right, who, yes. like the former, former uh, Prime Minister Athnar, who want him to go in harder... Um, and this is coming through citizens, this sort of, you know, cool right-wing youth party. Um, they are, they're already criticising him from the right. Why didn't you apply 155 earlier? Oh, it's finally you're doing it. So that's the sort of their sort of tone. Hmm. Um, and he's, he's got that as sort of pressures. And then he's got pressures coming from uh, sections of business who are saying, don't fuck this up, don't hmm. mess this up, hmm. you know, so. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning. And this interview is with Dick Nichols, who is the Green Left Weekly correspondent in Barcelona, Spain. He's commenting on the latest developments on the struggle by the Catalonians for independence. This interview was recorded last night to keep listeners updated with the latest struggle. So we shall continue with the interview. Yeah, and and yeah, it's interesting, that. but the other apparatus that is um, supporting this this cluster of um, rigid 
nationalists, I guess, uh, mm. or the left or Franco movement, is the High Court. I, I'm just appalled at the, uh, the the behavior of the High Court. Firstly, to to declare the referendum illegal, but recently it also accepted the petition of the right wing party war demanding the arrest of um, Pouche de Monde. Yeah, but there were two different courts. The 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 the, the there's the high, the high court. There's a constitutional court. Oh, that's right. That, that declared the yeah, referendum and, illegal. And then there's the high court, which has branches in each of the uh, the autonomous regions in Spain. Hmm. The the high court branch in Catalonia, all it, what it has done is it has accepted that it will hear a case from Vox, which is this you know extreme right nationalist Spanish nationalist outfit. Uh, <clears throat> it's kind of you know the PP people who think the PP isn't doing the job properly. All right, so we'll go and set up our own little horrible uh, you know right nationalist outfit. It's accepted their uh, petition to actually hear a case that Puigdemont should be arrested for infringing the Constitution. That's what's happened there. Mm. But more important than that, which is a bit of theatre, probably a bit of political theatre, more important than that is the Constitutional Court. And the Constitutional Court in any normal country doesn't have normal, you know, ruling bourgeois country, put it that way, doesn't have executive or prosecutorial powers. It just makes decisions about whether a particular action or a particular piece of legislation is constitutional or not. But what's happened here and what happened here in 2015 was that the Rajoy government gave the Constitutional Court prosecutorial and uh, penalty-giving powers, penalty-imposing powers. Mm. So it didn't just, you know, make wise decisions about constitutionality. It it was given the the power to put the boot in, which they have done in Catalonia. Uh, but also the other thing I think to realise is that here this whole judicial system in Spain is fixed. Of course. Uh, in a way, it's, it's fixed in a way that's not clear in other countries, not the case, even in other countries where, of course, there's always a struggle between left and right over who's going to, which judges are going to replace which judges on the high court. That's, that's the standard in the United States, standard in Australia. But here you have uh, a judicial system was the one area of the old Francoist system, the old dictatorial system, which was not purged after in the transition. Uh, they purged the armed forces, they purged the education system to some degree, but this was left basically untouched. And basically what happens is the judges are appointed by politically. That is to say there is a committee of appointing of judges and depend who's got the majority on this committee, if it's the PP or if it's the PSOE, they get their people up as judges. So what's happened is because the PP's been in power, you've now got a constitutional court with a built-in majority of conservative PPs who simply operate as a third tier of government, hmm. you know, a third house of parliament, a third house of parliament. Yes. But it's got the appearance of being, you know, the law, the constitutional court. And, of course, Rajoy goes on and on and on. You would like a euro for every time he says we have to obey the law. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the law is, you know, our people following our orders. That's right. But um, let's round up with um, what the reaction has been from the trade unions and, of course, Podemos. Um, 
to to all that's going on at the moment? Are they doing anything or are they just um, saying things? No, the Podemos has did. Podemos has, you know, I think they've done good good work. You know, they they first of all they had an initiative which was to get all parties, sorry, all elected officials, you know, MPs at the state and regional level, councillors, town councillors, city councillors. <clears throat> I say all elected officials that belong to the parties that support a right to self-determination to meet, and they meet in Tharagotha, and to sign a document, a statement. So what it's basically, this statement was good because it's basically a spearhead against, an ideological spearhead against, you know, Spain, you can't touch it, it's against Spanish centralism. And there were right-wing, you know, the Basque, right-wing Basque Nationalist Party was there and the Esquerra Republicana from here, uh, the Republican left from here was here, was there, as was the right-wing, as was the conser- uh, the, uh, the Catalan uh, <clears throat> European Democratic Party, which is the new name for convergence. They were all there. And so that was an initiative of Podemos. And, and Podemos is running, in, you know, very strongly on this question. Is you, until Spanish institutions and institutional structures and the territorial structure of the country reflects the reality, which is, is a, a plurinational country, and that you have to respect that. And the only way in the end to respect that is to accept the right to self-determination, i.e. accept that the different peoples of the Spanish state can decide if they want to be part of it and on what terms they want to be part of it. Until you accept that, this will, this problem will never go away. Mm. So that's good that they've done that. Um, they didn't accept that this was, and this is here I disagree with them, that here, they didn't accept that this was a real referendum on October the 1st. Oh. Uh, they said you, the conditions under which this was done were so bad um, the oppression, not you know, the oppression of the police, etc., etc. The guarantees were not there. The guarantees that it was a, a proper referendum were not there, um, and it still leaves up. It still leaves the need for a proper negotiated referendum to decide what people want. And it's there's an element of truth in that because you know there's only forty three percent participation in this referendum, yep. and a lot of the unionist vote. Uh, just expressed itself in boycotting the referendum. Hmm. So you, you, that's that's all true, but the answer to that, which this is why I disagree with them, is well, what was the alternative? Yeah. The alternative is what? Just to wait for years and years and years until <clears throat> Podemos gets a majority at the level of the Spanish state. Yeah. Um, well, no, that's not. You know, you have a mass movement here which is driving to have a decision on this question. Mm. Uh, and they've waited long quite, enough. Yeah. So, but that's all sort of gone a bit into the background now because the fight now is just over the democratic right to decide. Um, so even though Podemos and has a different position, and they have these are all nuanced. I mean, I'm describing this very crudely because people have different nuanced positions course, on this. Yeah. Um, but even though they say this was not a, a, a real referendum, the battle now is to stop the Spanish state applying 155 Correct. and getting rid of Catalan um, self-rule. Mm. And on that, they, they're, you know, as one. So on the, in the big strike on October 3, it was a, a block of pro-independence forces 
and people who support the right to self-determination. So that is 80% of the Catalan population. Mm. So, yeah, I, um, that, I think that's, they've played a, a, that role. Um, okay, so you can, they get criticism from the indep- left independence camp, but uh, they also get howling criticism from the Spanish centralist right and the, Spanish, and the, the, the Social Democratic Party, the PSOE. And what has happened here, just, I'll just finish off, um, all the attempts to the flirtation between Podemos and the PSOE to try and get a, you know, a united position on the basis of which they could do a motion of uh, no confidence in the Rajoy government, well, of course, that's all gone up in smoke. Of course. Because PSOE's got its block with, because the Catalan question is now the question in Spanish mm. politics. So, you know, PSOE and the PP stand together. And Podemos now is going to is had to take the position that it, well, it's adopted its position, and now that is a fight, and it's a fight for hearts and minds across the Spanish state. Um, so, in the short run, there's not going to be any overthrow of the Rajoy government in the Spanish state. No, but in the medium, short to medium term, the position of the PSOE is, becomes more fragile, um, and if they just do a deal with the PP on some kind of fictitious reform of the constitution, which doesn't go anywhere towards dealing with the real issues, then they will pay a price for that. Yeah. Uh, they will pay a price just for associating themselves with, uh, with the, the PP. Yes, yes. So um, this is all, you know, in the up in the air and it's, you know, the, the variables are all very complicated. Of but they can't, they can't just... They can potentially pay a big price for their stand on this. Like they've, they've come out in Parliament yesterday and said, "We are a party of the state. Oh, right. We are a party of the constitution." Oh. Well, that 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 makes some people happy, but it makes a lot of Pesoe <laughs> rank and file people nervous. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. if he starts talking like that, it means <laughs> it bad is. things are about to happen. Yeah. Thanks, Nick, and we'll touch base again soon. Okay, thank you very much, Lolly. Thank you Always so much. Nice to talk. Okay, bye. bye. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible. And you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. You're going to hear it now blasting out the radio. The state government wants to give property developers access to valuable inner-city land that is currently used for public housing. It has announced a large-scale renewal program that will involve the forced removal of tenants and the demolition of nine housing estates across Melbourne. Thousands of new homes will be built on the estates, but the vast majority of these will be privately owned. The developers stand to make big profits by cashing in on land that should be used for public housing. There are nearly 35,000 Victorians on the public housing wait list and there is a housing affordability crisis across most of the state. 
The need for thousands of new public housing homes is critical. Instead, the government wants to let developers in to build thousands of unaffordable private apartments. Join a community rally to celebrate and defend public housing this Sunday, October the 15th, 1pm at Debney's Park, Mount Alexander Road, Flemington. There'll be speakers, music, kids' activities and a barbecue, organised by the Public Housing Defence Network, a 3CR supporter. All right, Green Left Weekly Radio, you are listening on 855am or the um, or you're streaming on FreeCR and it's also currently 743am. That's a confusing announcement. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Yeah. So yeah, we've um we've just um um did a pre-recorded interview with Dick Nichols on the whole situation that's currently uh, unfolding in Catalonia, mm-hmm. um and we're expecting a call from Jed Carney um from the ACTU um to talk about um this kind of penalty rates, rates yeah. case um but right now we can probably in the meantime talk about some you know news, news and I think yeah. Lali has something to share. Yeah, I I'm I'm very um annoyed and, and concerned about what's happening at um, the border of Bangladesh and uh, Burma and the plight of the Rohingyas. And it's really sad to see more than half a million people being made homeless and the supporter, um, the, the woman we supported as the leader of the Burmese um, government now, Aung San Suu Kyi, is denying or seems to be living in denial and people are making excuses um, about the fact that she's not in control of the military, she's not, you know, in control of this or that or the other. The same sort of scenario that happened for Obama as well. They are in a position of power, and I haven't seen any um, any sort of solidarity being uh, said about uh, the Rohingya people, any support, or even being honest and say, yes, people are leaving by the droves, there must be something wrong. Surely you must suspect something. I mean, there's something else um, going on here. It seems that the local politics versus, uh, like, make putting the Rohingyas on the sacrificial block, so to speak, and that's what it seems to be happening. Uh, people can, you know, have different views on this, but I really despair when I see leaders who betray the people mm. they're supposed to be representing. Yeah. And more than half a million people is not a sneeze. It's, it's being classified as a genocide. And um, it's it's heartbreaking to watch children, old people, just escaping with the um, clothes on their back, uh, yeah. fleeing yeah. the country. It's just so sad. I guess what it shows is the Nobel Peace Prize is actually a so worthless nice. a worthless award. Um, yeah, I mean, I know IPAN got one extent. recently, but I think it's sort of like it's just a way of um, you know the ruling class to make to kind of try and attempt to legitimise it, but they occasionally give it to something that's possibly generally quite progressive. Um, yeah, they gave it to they gave it the peace prize to Obama when he before well, he, he when he newly came to power. Right, there's a just quickly call on line seven. I'll just okay. You you can't give it that. Well, I'll just take that. Yeah, you, you, you want to cover the the Rohingya story so that you know people are aware of what's happening, yep. so that um, we can. 
So continuing on from this whole discussion uh, about Rohingya, um, there is a there is a statement um, that was written here by Sue Bolton. Um, you know, she starts off by saying that you know, in a September address um, to the United Nations Human Rights Council, top UN human rights official said. Rad Ali Hussein described Myanmar's um, military attacks on Rohingya as a, being a textbook example of ethnic, of ethnic cleansing. Satellite photos show um, Myanmar's security forces and local militia burning entire Rohingya villages to the ground. There are consistent accounts of extrajudicial killings, including the shooting of um, fleeing civilians. Um, you know. Um, Sue then writes here that, you know, since the latest violence against the Rohingya began in August, more than 400,000 Rohingya people have fled to um, Bangladesh. Sorry, Mike, unfortunately going to have to cut this short since we've got our next interview online. So I'll just go put her on now. Morning, Jazz. Good morning. Thank you so much for <laughs> being available at this time of the morning to talk about oh, this. It's, absolutely fine. Thank it's you. It's such an important issue and it's, it's heartbreaking to read the decision of the federal court on the penalty rates for so many workers. Um, what is the analysis of the ACTU on this decision? Well, the decision found, or the federal court found, that the Fair Work Commission acted within its legal remit to make the decision. Uh, the trade unions were arguing that it um, had misinterpreted its, um, its, its ambit, but the court found that that wasn't the case. So they didn't make a, um, really a comment on whether or not the Fair Work Commission made the right decision, just that it acted within the law. So from our perspective, that means that the law is the problem. And <laughs> yes, the law, we know that. <laughs> and the law, therefore, needs to change. And it's really just cemented us. Um, uh, our thinking that we have to campaign long and hard to change the laws so we never see this happen again. Yes, this has been happening for a fair bit, hasn't it? The attack on workers from all sorts of angles. And um, the fact remains that from the um, what early 80s, wages haven't actually risen relative to the rights and profits. One of the questions I've always wanted to ask somebody like yourself is, you know, we have this restrictive control or wages and how it rises, how much it rises, when it rises, and all these uh, mm-hmm. conditions. Yet the profits don't have any limits. Explain no. that to us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's called trickle-down economics or neoliberalism. That's exactly what it's called. And you've just described it in a nutshell so beautifully. And that is exactly what's happened for 30 years. We've been told that you know, if we give um, tax breaks to multinational corporations, if we keep wages low, if, you know, uh, if, if all our focus is on making sure that profits are high... Uh, then we'll all be better off. There'll be more jobs and, and, you know, people will be happy and fine. But, of course, after 30 years, you know, we realise, some people knew all along, uh, that that simply, all that's done is it's concentrated a large amount of wealth in a a very small group of elites. And the rest of us, you know, have had wage stagnation. We've seen rising casualisation. We've seen... um, you know, uh, part-time work on the rise. We've seen underemployment. People have to work two and three jobs just to make a living. Uh, and as a result, inequality has has risen in this country. I don't know if you saw a report by the um, IMF. You know, hardly 
you know, a bastion of progressive politics. Yes. The IMF <laughs> yesterday put out a report to say that um, out of all of the OECD countries, inequality in Australia is rising um, the fastest. Hmm. And yeah, so we've got to do something about this. We and, it, and it's really great. I think that people like yourselves are starting to really comment on this. We're putting it out there in our discussions, and people are finally realizing that yeah, you know, trickle down economics hasn't done anything for us. Uh, it's just uh, kept wages low and, and let profits soar. Absolutely, you are absolutely right there. Hmm. And the other question, I hope you're not offended by this, is no. is um. The, the the trade unions and the way mm. um, one aspect is how they've been legally controlled by the successive government, whether it's uh, Labour Party or um, Liberal Party. In fact, the Accord was the first noose on the neck of the trade unions, in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and from then, it has been downhill all the way. Um, mm. and, and the impossible positions trade unions have been put in legally um, so that they can't fight back. That that is seems to be like you know asking the trade unions to fight this new liberal um, project with their hands tied behind their back. So, what is mm-hmm. the the position mm-hmm. of the ACTU on this? Yeah, you know you, you're absolutely right. So we've seen uh, at the same time as uh, neoliberal economics has taken a hold since Maggie Thatcher and uh, and Ronald Reagan, and yes. we we have seen uh, the laws change that to basically smash unions um, because unions really were the, I guess, the front line against um, that type of economics, you know, because we demand higher wages. We demand that the social protection law like health and education and maternity leave and all those things um, are, are at a level that actually serves the people. The trade union movement has fought really, really hard for all of those things. So one of the first things they have to do is get rid of us. Um, and... Uh, we've gradually seen workers' rights diminished. I mean, we had Howard, of course, go bang with work choices, which people sort of really rebelled against, and we saw work choices go along with Howard. But at the same time, he did very clever things, like he introduced the Independent Contractors Act, which we now has manifest in... We're seeing people being forced to get ABN numbers and be individual contractors, mm, and really mm. they should be employees. Um we saw the demise of um, full-time work. We saw the introduction of labour hire uh, grow dramatically uh, so that people aren't employed directly by their employer anymore, but they're employed by a third party. Uh, we've seen more and more workers become casualised. So, um, and, and our bargaining laws, you're absolutely right, our industrial relations laws make it so restrictive for us to actually fight back uh, that... Uh, We've just come to the point now where we've said, oh, and excuse my language, but bugger it, we're going to change the laws. That's we the have only to. Way. We, we have, have to, Jed. To. How are we going to do that? That's a question. Well, um, we are trying. We are mobilising right now. I think that this is the focus of the ACTU's campaign right now. I hope everybody's noticed that. Change the rules. Um, yes, yeah, sounds good. It sounds good. <laughs> and so we're doing lots of things. We've got our um, foot soldiers on the ground who are pointing out the problem. You know, we're trying to um, make people, I guess, you know, ang- the old anger, hope, action uh, paradigm. Uh, we're kind of in the anger, in the anger one where, you know, $65 billion of tax cuts to multinational corporations mm. is a bad thing. And uh, we're not going to sit back and let these things like Howard, you know, just sneak through in the Howard years like he did all these very sneaky things. 
Um, fair, fair to say, you know, Labor's Fair Work Act is not perfect. It was it was a swing back from work choices, but you know, as you said, there's still a lot of things wrong with that. So we're making people aware um, of what the, why their wages are low and why inequality is rising in Australia. And uh, we're working on what we want. We've got the entire trade union movement meeting, you know, on a weekly basis to try to work out, well, if we were to change the rules, what will we change them to? And, and what would a decent industrial relations system look like? And then the next phase, of, of course, is to get out on the streets and actually demand that. And that's we're coming to that phase very quickly. Mm. Uh, I think the, the the people who are most affected by this uh, federal court decision and the Fair Work Commission originally, of course, um, are the young people, and they are very angry. So much has been taken away from them. Mm. Um, it's it's gone from a fully paid edu- education system to a uh, pay as you as you study type system, and now. This comes on the top of many other issues I, I, I don't have the time to, to mention. Um, what sort of focus are you going to have? Are you going to target these young people um, who are already pretty angry um, about these issues? And many of them don't even uh, belong to a, a, a trade union because a lot of them are casual. They're uni students who are trying to make a buck to, to, to make a living as well as study. So they're in a very hard place or between a rock and a hard place, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so your target, is that going to be young people or what sort of angle are you taking? Yeah, we, we very much recognise the plight of young people. You know, 10 years ago, we had 16% of the workforce on the minimum wage and on award wages. Today, we have 25%. Mm. So a quarter of the workforce is on the minimum wage now. And uh, the gap between the minimum wage and what people who bargained for is is huge. It's absolutely enormous. It's rising. And so we really uh, do understand that young people are representing a large proportion of those workers who are on the minimum wage and on the award wage. They're casualised. They're paid cash in hand, so they're in the cash economy. Um, they don't have the protections of the Fair Work Act, etc. So, uh, you know, but having said that... Um, we don't think that the issues for young people are different to anybody else. And if you talk to young people, yeah, they're worried about casualisation and they're worried about all those things you're talking about. But so, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of older people are also caught up in the um, the clause of neoliberalism. So I think that the different thing with younger people is how we communicate with them, how we reach them. And like you said, a lot of them have never even been exposed to being in a union. So... We're looking at really new and innovative ways to reach out to young people. We've um, uh, got some trials at the moment using phone apps, uh, organising young people around in hospitality, around their issues in hospitality, so that they communicate with us through an app on the phone and with each other. Uh, we've, um, we're organising a, a big group of hairdressers, actually very successfully, young women mostly, in small shops uh, who may not take... You know, where the boss may not like a union rep walking in when there's only two or three employees and a few customers sitting in a chair. So we're use, looking at using Facebook to organise um, uh, hairdressers, same with pharmacists. So, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that 
It's about how we communicate and how we reach those people. And the trade union movement is putting a lot of time and effort into that at the moment. Mm, that That's very um, uh, progressive because gone are the days where the union organiser had to go on site and call a meeting and yeah. try to... Oh, it, it's, it's an, well, you, I, I used you can't to do it now. No, you can't. You can't walk yeah. into a factory and hold a meeting. It's impossible. No, it's illegal. <laughs> <It's just walking. laughs> yes, one of the um, big laws. In fact, we had our nurses union was is taking industrial action and... Uh, they had a picket line on the on the footpath, and the hospital called the council. The council came along and said, "You haven't got a permit to hold a gathering on the footpath, and mm. you know dissolve the picket line." So it's just getting impossible these days, absolutely impossible. And this collusion from the local um, level of government—that's just appalling. That was disappointing. We were so disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. So the rules really have to change because people have lost power at the workplace. Power has swung all the way to the employer and to large corporations. So we've got to pull the power back. If power have, people have bargaining power, if they have power to exercise their rights as individuals and workers, then you know we can change the system. Okay, how, how are we going to um, get the listeners to, to this program to support uh, trade unions and the ATT in fighting back and, and trying to change the rules? Well, if, um, the first thing I would say is join a union. If you're yes. not in a union, <laughs> consider joining a union. Go to Australian Union's website. And uh, we're, and, and that's, that's another thing we're working on that we've trialled in Tasmania and in other uh, places. Not in Victoria yet, but a one-click join. It's very complicated to join a union if you're out there sometimes. So you can join a union online, but you can ring Australian Union to do that. And have a look at the campaigns that we're running and how you can get involved. Um, follow us on social media uh, and, uh, you know, like share our things on social media because we've got to get the word out there. And when we have um, rallies and when we do come together, please join us. Uh, and But the first thing I would say is if you join your union, you'll get regular communications from us. So that, that's probably the main thing. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll talk to you again. Hopefully this campaign, you know, catches fire, so to speak. And yes. we can... We can uh, progress forward yeah the bigger the army the, the uh, you know the more effective it is when we mobilize so Absolutely. we need as many people as possible mm. uh, to join the campaign and, and thank you so much for giving me the time today i really appreciate it thank you for being available okay okay thanks bye bye all right we'll play a quick announcement we will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it.
Hi. Uh, welcome back to um, Green Left Weekly Radio, and we are in the section of activist calendar. Let me start off um, the first one, which is um, Les Thomas and Frank Jones performing at the Kingsbury Bowls Club, Arch Gibson Reserve, Dunn Street in Kingsbury, and that's tonight. So do support Les Thomas. Um, he has been a progressive supporter of um, all sorts of issues. And of course, he's a Koori man, um, and we've seen him do enormous work around the um, refugee uh, issues. And this Sunday, celebrate and defend public housing at 1 p.m., Debney Park, Mount Alexander Road, Flemington, organized by Public Housing Defense Network. And the same day, we have a speak out for Palestine at 4 p.m. at Oak Grove Community Center, 89201 Oak Grove Drive, Nari Warren South, organized by Casey Friends of Palestine. And Monday, 16th of October, there's a film screening, Sherpa 19, uh, sorry, 2014, Asia Australia Workers Links reported on the impending strike of Sherpas following an avalanche that killed 15 support climbers, including the Sherpa Union's president. And it's a documentary. It's uh, $20 full and $10 concession at 318 St. George's Road, Fitzroy North. It's a fundraiser for Asia, Australia Asia Workers Link. Yeah. So one announcement is um, next Saturday there's going to be quite a uh, very fascinating forum um, happening that is going to be organised by Green Left Weekly. Um, no Pride in Genocide. Don't celebrate January 26th. Um, that is happening next Saturday on the 21st of October at 2pm at the Coburg Courthouse. And it features uh, a range of speakers, including Lydia Forp, First Nations activist and Greens candidate for Northcote, Gary Murray, um, who's a Wamba Wamba elder um, and part of the Victoria traditional owner land justice group. Um, Annette Ziberus. But she is a Wandry elder and um, co-chair of the Victorian traditional owner land justice group. And then we have Sue Bolton, social science and Moreland counsellor. So this will be a forum kind of like discussing, you know, the whole kind of colonisation and, you know, how... Basically, our colonialist government refuses to acknowledge its history, so okay. it should be an interesting forum. Yeah, I think I think it, it's something that you know um, they'll create good debate. Um, there's also a public meeting um, on Monday, the 16th of October, um, Foodies Against Famine, and this is guest speakers to discuss uh, the critical issue of famine affecting over 20 million people in Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. Um, there's um, a uh, event, I suppose, where Les Thomas again is performing. Oxfam's Dylan uh, Quinlan, uh, amazing food and drinks available, and it's organised by sub. Um, it's organised uh, by a group of people who are actually just getting together for this this uh, particular event. Uh, the contact person is Alicia McMurray, zero four zero four zero four eight. 629 for bookings and ox, uh, the event is being held at an Ethiopian restaurant Sabas and the address is 328 Brunswick Street Fitzroy and on Tuesday the public meeting Dirty Deals 10 years on the story of uranium mining guest speakers are Rainford Mwangodon uh, let me try that again sorry Mwangodon uh, 
Mongonde, citizen, Citizens for Justice from Malawi. Uh, Rain, uh, Rainford has challenged uh, Perth-based mining company Paladin Energy, um, Energy's Kaye Lekara Uranium Mining in Malawi, the heart of Africa. So the whole history and the rehabilitation issue will be discussed. So it'll, it's being held at the Friends of the Earth on Tuesday the 17th, 312 Smith Street, <clears throat> Collingwood. That should be a very interesting forum as well. Do you want to do the other? Do the other one. Um, so another, um, another some. Uh, well, I don't really have much announcement because I don't have it in front of me. Okay, that's all right. Then I'll do that. Um, on Wednesday, the eighteenth of October, uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing Parliament Steps, Spring Street, um, hosted by Defend and Extend Public Housing. There's a lot of rallies for this public housing, so please support people who have become homeless or, or, or about being moved or evicted from public housing. <clears throat> is a vital issue for us today. So the next one is public meeting. Peter Grester in conversation. The first casualty in foreign correspondent, Peter um, Grester, uh, this is in the Middle East. Um, and to, to talk about journalism, war on journalism, and the sort of manipulations that are being made by various governments to control journalists. So the entry is free um, in Bella Union Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets. And that's on Wednesday, the 18th of October. Friday, 20th um, and through to 22nd, Deep Ecology Workshop conducted by John Seed, uh, Camp Eureka, 100 Taronga Road, Youth um, Yara Junction, hosted by Rainforest Information Center. And if you go to the website and look up Rainforest Information Center, it'll have all the, the details in it. Saturday, 21st of October, that's, that's the... Um, Forum on No Pride in Genocide, as um, Jacob mentioned. Now, moving on. Uh, Sunday, 22nd of October, the, uh, the Ballad of Reading Goal. Due to public demand, a special encore performance, five interpreter performers perform in Melbourne's oldest prison, the Old Melbourne Goal. Written in 1897, Oscar Wilde's heart-wrenching verse work in response to his notorious incarceration is as visceral today as when it was first composed. So it's at 8 p.m. at the Old Melbourne Goal, front entrance, 377 Russell Street. And Friday, 27th of October, um, we have Red Cinema, Cise uh, Puede. Yes, you can. I'm sorry if I pronounced the Spanish title badly. My apologies. So it's a, it's about housing. It's a, another event. It's a movie from Spain, obviously. Uh, it's about mortgage stress and outright homelessness, in which is rising sharply in Australia. And this is a, a success story. So this struggle gives us an idea of of how a future. The, sorry. Uh, gives us an idea of our future if this trend continues. Uh, the The movie shows a typical week in the life of Barcelona's uh, platform for people affected by mortgages, a radical activist organization dedicated to fighting evictions and demanding policies. They are called PAH, uh, which puts people's needs ahead of corporate greed. So that is at the Residence Center at 6.30, following, and there will be meal available. For sale, of course, and that's five hundred 
and 40s no it's level 5407 Swanson Street opposite the RMIT that's a fundraiser for this newspaper and and um uh, radio program um green left weekly and there's one other important issue which is a public meeting black lives matter in conversation in Australia to collect the Sydney Peace Prize for Black Lives Matter founders and leaders will talk about the achievements and broader goals of Black Lives Matter and how we can translate the lessons of the movement to fight entrenched inequality in the Torres Strait and Aboriginal communities. 8 Plenary 1, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. So if you wish to join them, you can go to the website and just, again, Google the um event and you'll get all the details and there are lots of other regional stuff um, happening and if you want to look at the activities please go to Green Left Weekly on the web and you'll see more of the um, activities uh, advertised. So we go to the next interview now. It's um, from, it's about so, the NTU. I, yep, so um, on the line here um, we've got Paul Adams um, who is uh, the NTU branch president of the Victoria University although it could be former, I'm not sure what's happening there, but um, Paul is going to be telling us more about the kind of attacks um, that Victoria University Upper Management has done on the union. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing, Jacob? Yeah, so can you give us kind of like a summary of what um, Victoria University Upper Management has done and basically, you know, the details about the sackings and what's going to be um, happen next? Okay, so um, the... Uh, University is about to start enterprise bargaining soon um, and just before enterprise bargaining what's happened is <clears throat> we've had three of our out of our four branch offices uh, 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 put in the retrenchment process uh, so that's myself I'm the president um, uh, Stuart Martin who's the uh, professional vice president and David Garland who's the secretary um, we don't believe that this can be any coincidence, um, and indeed uh, it's never happened at any other union branch at a university anywhere in Australia. Um, and we think <coughs> pretty much what uh, is happening is that uh, management are seeking to cripple the union uh, coming into enterprise bargaining uh, because we think they may have uh, an interest in uh, bringing in uh, very substandard conditions for, for staff there. Um, it, it is, a, uh, I think, a fairly um, uh, difficult situation. Um, we are getting lots of support, though, from uh, other unions and also the, the National Union at the moment. Um, has also been passed on to us as well, um, privately from management, that indeed uh, some of us have, have been targeted. So we're not in any doubt that that's what's happening. Um, uh, we think this is an attempt to... Uh, uh, try and smash the union at at um, for you, but uh, we are into you, and we're here to stay. So we're going to fight them. Mm. I guess um, one thing question I kind of have because it seems like I, it seems like I almost when I first heard the news, it almost seemed like an unprecedented kind of case. Um, what is kind of like the legalities of this? Can the uh, upper management actually get away with such a deliberate kind of attack on um, you know union organisation? Well, I think as many unionists are beginning to realise around Australia, um, and indeed the ACTU is, is even very vocal about this, the Fair Work Act and you know our industrial relations system in Australia is broken. 
mm. it doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, in addition to what's happening to us, for example, um, you know, there's been 700 enterprise bargaining agreements in Australia terminated. Um, in our industry, uh, Murdoch Universities was terminated recently. What that meant for staff there was a, you know, potentially a 30, 40% drop in wages, uh, cuts to super, um, cuts to things like personal leave. Um, you know, these are, you know, conditions which have been built up you know, over over 20 years and are being taken away with a stroke of a pen. Uh, in our particular case, um, uh, we're battling with the adverse action laws. Um, they're very antiqu- uh, uh, antiquated. Um, uh, in order to prove um, that you have been targeted, you have to actually get uh, management to put it in writing to you, um, which is absurd because management, of course, are never going to do that. Um, so that does make uh, workers around Australia and um, uh, industrial officials uh, very vulnerable to this kind of attack. Um, and in the old days, of course, what we would have done, um, and I'm possibly old enough to remember it, you know, prior <laughs> to the Fair Work Act, we just would have all gone on strike. That's right. Um, we can't do that now because um, if we do that, it's illegal. They know who we are and they'll come and take our houses. So... Um, you know, it really is a situation where uh, things are very much stacked against um, working people. I guess um, the next question I'm going to ask is, what is the kind of action, like sort of practical action that's going to be taken in response to this? Okay, so the union has mobilised and there was at our National Council uh, support from all uh, branches for VU right across Australia and there was a motion moved about that. So we have support coming in uh, from union branches in the NTU, um, even as far away as Western Australia. Indeed, Murdoch Uni sent us a great message of support the other day, uh, a motion that they had moved. Um, but we also have a, um, a mass union rally planned, uh, but anyone's invited to come on the 2nd of November, and that's going to be outside our university council meeting. Uh, we think the time will be between 12 and 1, but we're just kind of waiting to confirm that, um, just in case they move the meeting. Um, and, but we're also hoping to get cross-union support for that because we think what's happening to us is outrageous. We think if it happens to us, it can happen to any uh, unionist uh, in Australia, um, and it's something that we need to, to stand up and take some strong action against. So we can't let them get away with this. Yeah. It appears like the, um, the implications of, um, of the Murdoch University decision um, to basically abolish enterprise bargaining agreement is actually almost having a reverberating effect because it's basically you know, giving all the kind of upper management, the vice chancellors or um, universities ideas on how all well on ideas on how they could attack, you know, university um, staff um, and, um, you know, and in University of Sydney, there's actually, there was actually a big um, sort of um, pay dispute as well happening there, although that kind of got resolved. Um, but yeah, what do you kind of think of this? this? Yeah, look, I, I think there initially after Murdoch, there was a feeling, um, you know, from the Vice-Chancellor's Committee and other people that this was an opportunity to reduce conditions at universities. Indeed, you know, the Federal Minister for Education, Simon Birding, Birmingham, came out in a speech and said, come on, Vice-Chancellors, this is an opportunity. Um, you know, it's time to get stuck into your workforce. You can start, you know, drastically reducing um, conditions. Um, and so there was a move at some universities to try and do this. And, uh, you know, there was things like a ballot at um, uh, University of 
Sydney to try and get staff to you know agree to a bad agreement and also at JCU. Um, but these ballots went down, and uh, not only did uh, union members uh, vote against management, but also non-union members. So they're very unpopular, uh, and our union uh, feels that there is now a um, feeling in the air that uh, workers are getting very angry about this, and it's not just in our industry about what's happening uh, in the Fair Work Act, and, and people are starting to, to mobilise in quite a serious way. Um, and uh, there will be, I think, growing pressure from the union movement to do something about this because, in a sense, uh, the sorts of things that are happening are basically um, really uh, saying to uh, Australian workers, um, you know, the Fair Work Act no longer functions for you. You, you, you have no um, a piece of the industrial system. There is nothing there that really works for you. Um, and... Um, People are getting, you know, I think a lot of workers are getting very angry about it. Uh, so, um, you know, I think there will be uh, a lot of growth of um, support and anger around the um, uh, Broken Rules campaign, uh, which is starting to, to gather quite a lot of momentum. Mm, I hope that momentum um, gets stronger because you were talking to Jed Carney before and that's what she, she was talking about. Uh, but what, what I find is just really baffling that the... the the attack on the workers, especially in the education sector, means poor quality service. And that is the education of young people who are supposed to be the bedrock of the future in any one nation. How does the management account for that? Because we know that uh, even last year there were 44 private colleges closed around the country because of um, a lack of credentials and the lack of, uh, lack of quality. How do they you know, justify this, these cuts when they're fully aware, as people who manage, that it will affect quality of teaching. Yeah, indeed. And that's certainly uh, something that the NTU has been arguing you know, very strongly about, that, um, you know, all the cuts that are happening, uh, you know, particularly the intensification of teaching and, um, you know, the, the dumbing down of universities, which is occurring at the moment, is having a significant effect on on, on things like teaching. But uh, the problem we've really got is that um, we no longer work in the old system of universities where we had, um, you know, boards of intellectuals and academics yes. running the place. Uh, most of the people running universities on university councils now um, look like... Uh, you know, MBA, multi- MBA graduates, are they? Well, multinational <laughs> boards, essentially. Yeah. You know, um, and they don't actually have a loyalty to the university system or indeed to their staff or the institution, they really only have a loyalty to themselves and making profit. Um, and that's the problem. Um, and, you know, this is a problem that's endemic in, in the university system and and, the, and it must be squarely placed at the feet of, um, you know, the various governments that have been presiding uh, over the education system because they've let it develop like this. Uh, the net effect is bad for staff, the net effect is bad for students because, in essence, uh, what they're trying to do is to cheapen costs and increase profit, but that doesn't equal good education. Yeah, but how much of, of VU is actually a profit-making enterprise? Because it is public education. Yeah, well, that's, that's a very good question. Um, you know, what, what in essence I think they're uh, trying to do is, um, you know, make profits uh, for themselves. I mean, vice-chancellor's salaries are mm. amazing. You know, mm. uh, you know the, we have some of the most highly paid uh, vice-chancellors in the world, um, we have, um, uh, you know, the less uh, money. Uh, we have some of the highest student fees in the world. 
Mm. Um, and uh, we have the least investment in the university system uh, mm. in the OECD. So there's some very dramatic statistics there uh, which tell you um, that uh, you know the various governments have been really trying to get um, the higher education system not only to pay for itself but to make profit um, uh, and students and staff are the losers in the system. Yeah, I guess one kind of question um, to kind of ask is, this is kind of a bit of the history. Um, basically, Victoria University um, has been one of those universities that has actually always been kind of under attack in terms of cuts. Yep. Um, it's And it's always been, of course, the upper management have always, in you know, this is probably true to a certain extent compared to, a, say, a university like Monash in Melbourne University. Yep. It's actually a struggling university that's, that's correct, actually... Yeah struggling um you know um what do you see uh, um happening in terms of like the future of victoria university especially if they are for because they um last this year alone they've been they were attempting to push a restructuring of the university um and of course if that restructuring um doesn't work out in the end what is going to be the future of victoria university especially in the case that it's the only university um, for some of the more um, for the western suburbs, I think that's a very interesting question. But let's backtrack a bit on some of the uh, issues you've raised. Um, I think um, you know there's no doubt that VU did not do well um, when uh, the university system was marketised. So uh, mm. you know originally we had a system of block funding uh, where every institution was guaranteed funding. What they did was that they opened up the doors and said, you know. Um, any, there's no cap on student places for universities that can take as many as they like. Um, VU didn't benefit very well from that system because what happened was that some of the bigger universities started warehousing students and we started um, losing students. So that, that was kind of one of the problems. Um, there were other universities in similar sorts of situations to that, but VU seems to have uh, fared uh, poorly on that, I think, because of very poor management at the university. Um, you know, they have had a very anti-union, anti-staff approach. That's one of the problems. So they haven't been, um, you know, really been able to get staff on side. They then, you know, went on a outsourcing and uh, privatisation sort of spree. They outsourced their facility services. Um, instead of making a profit, it made a huge loss. Uh, that got added to the loss that was there. Um, they have then uh, basically had annual and um, six-monthly restructures, which have been very costly because they've had to pay out huge retrenchment bills. And a lot of the strategic funds that they've been saving have um, basically been paid out on things possibly they didn't need to pay on. So the, the, the actual situation there has actually been exacerbated, we would say, by very, very poor management. Um, in terms of where VU is going in the future, um, it is our view it didn't have to go this way, but because of this poor management, um, there is a danger that uh, you know we will no longer have a University of the West. Um, I, I would say that uh, you know a quite likely outcome sometime in the future is some kind of amalgamation or fire fire sale of the university. You know it's really the big fish eats the little fish, the sort of basic law of capitalist economics, and. Um, you know, we will see some sort of um, uh, eating of, of VU. Um, I suppose where staff are, are coming from, I mean, we just um, we would like to see the University of the West continue, but uh, it's becoming less less unlikely um, with the very poor management that we've had there. 
Uh, I mean, not only that, but University of Management has also gone systematically alienating the community as well by sewing up campuses and various other things. And and really, it's um, uh, you know the blight of neoliberalism, um, uh, which is the kind of way that VU has been rigidly run and managed. Uh, and you know, in a community area like the Western Suburbs, where you would expect. Um, you know, the university to be a community university, uh, not a multinational corporation. Uh, you know, these uh, kinds of methods uh, are not working. Um, mm. Okay. Thank you so much, Paul. We are running yep. out of time here. But that was very informative, and we'll get back to you to keep up with the progress of what's going on there. It's a really important struggle. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. And we are uh, running out of time. We are at the end of the program. Uh, let's thank, of course, Paul and um, Jet Carney, who was up early in the morning talking to us, and Dick Nichols for the pre-record from last night. And as you know, we uh, will podcast this program, and um, we shall say goodbye yeah. to our listeners. And thank you for listening. Hope well, you will listen again next Friday. And BZE is waiting at the door. Ooh, and yeah, stay tuned for B Beyond Zero Emissions. Yep. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com. Dot org dot au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.